You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Hello, my name is Dave DeKaiser, and I'm a bicycle retail consultant for the NBDA's P2 Consult Program. You can find more information on that on the NBDA's website, nbda.com. And you're listening to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio. Today, we have a really interesting guest. His name is Joe Dubois. He and his wife, Jane, own and operate nine truck stores in Southwest Florida. They have kind of been through the ringer with starting the business in 2006. By 2008, they had gone into the financial crisis. And Joe, with that, why don't you give us a little history? <laughs> All right. So uh, as far as the history goes, and I'll, I'll go back just a little bit further because uh, you know I got into the bike industry in the early 90s, um, probably like a lot of people who got into bikes. Uh, they just love riding. They had a passion for it and just felt at home in a bike shop. So I did that for a number of years working for other retailers basically assuming different roles throughout that period of time. And when it came to us to uh, finally open our first store in 2006, you know, we decided to go with Trek, do Trek concept stores. We picked the location down in Southwest Florida. And it was one of those pre-recession, I know in our previous conversation, I, I always refer to that time when just like people basically hated their money and they just didn't care. They just wanted to get rid of it. So like, I think it kind of gave us a, a false sense of our abilities at that point, because when we opened up, we just hit the ground running and started breaking records with Trek Corporate. I know within our first five months, we passed a million dollars, over two million in the first year. And that's where I say it kind of gave us this false sense of our abilities, because it was that time where money was flowing with everybody and they just weren't really thinking. What was your goal that first year that you hit 2 million? <laughs> it was one, it, Trek basically told us like, hey, if you hit $1 million in your first year, that's pretty solid, like you're doing well. So when we hit it within five months, we're like, huh, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little different than, uh, than what we were thinking. You know, when the, the recession came in 2008, it really started to hit the fan around November, I remember, for us. And for us, we actually ended up opening our second store about six months earlier. Here we go into the recession. We have two stores, big rents, lots of inventory, not in a good position as most people were at that time period. So we really needed to just look at what were we going to do that would allow us to survive? Because there was a lot, there was a lot of people especially in, in this part of the country that were hard hit. And it was freaking stressful. <laughs> how, much was of a, so freaking stressful. how much of a hit did you see after, say, going into 2009? What kind of a hit did your business see? It was approximately 25%, 30%. But this is like some people might, might look at that and they say, that's not that bad, 25%. You know, we had 50% or 40%. The part that was a big wake up call for us was up until that point, we really focused on net profit. And when the market fell out, it didn't really, net profit really wasn't the crucial metric for us to be looking at. And I didn't know that at first, like it took a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of reading books, talking to consultants, accountants, and just trying to figure out what the hell was going on in our company. Because like I, I could see a P&L profit and loss statement and it might say 
you know, just an arbitrary number. It might say, you know, we made $25,000, but that $25,000 wasn't sitting in the bank. So even though I may on one hand be showing profit, the cash just wasn't there. And that's where I knew that was going to be the death of us if I couldn't get a grasp on cash flow. Um, so let's get into that a little bit. So you had made $25,000. It's not in the bank. It's obviously on your floor. And that kind of leads into this getting lean kind of conversation. And I think that that's something that is extremely interesting about your business is how many turns you've seen and accomplished huge amount of turns, but you've kind of wound that back. Let's talk about turns and the getting lean and what that means to your to your cash flow. Sure. Prior to the recession, our turns were around two. Could have been, you know, anywhere from one point five to two point five, but it was probably pretty pretty consistent around two turns. Once we learned really inventory management, once we really understood cash flow, healthy categories of inventory, we were able to significantly reduce our overall investment in inventory. And basically, we took our turns from around two. We've had them as high as six, but once you start running inventory that lean, you're leaving money on the table. You're missing opportunities. So we've been able to scale that back down and, you know, right, we like to stick in that four-ish range, could be four, 4.5, but we're usually right around there. That's going to surprise people. <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of people consider that to be running it a little too lean, but through your ability to really optimize the inventory that you're carrying in each category, I think is is how you've gotten there. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's where, when I go back to... 0809, where we really started to dig into our inventory because that was one of the biggest expenses that we had. It was the biggest thing that was tying up our capital, our working capital. So we really wanted to get an understanding of that. And, you know, by doing that, we were, we were able to really apply Pareto's principle, which is, you know, the 80 20 rule. So we looked at, you know, where do we generate the majority of our sales from. And for us as probably a lot of bike shops, it's bike sales. So we were able to take all of our bicycles and figure out which ones are largest revenue drivers. We broke them down per category and we looked at average sales that the category was producing. We looked at average inventory levels, gross profit and gross margin for that category. And we were able to quantify what our target price should be as far as what our margin, are we selling this product at a too low of a margin? Are we carrying too much inventory in this particular category in order to generate a positive cash flow? Uh, eye opener for us was we like to chase the road bike sales. You know, everybody feels good when they sell a high end road bike, a five, $10,000 plus road bike, you know, it's a good day. So we had a lot of inventory dollars tied up in that particular category. And what we were able to figure out was for the amount of inventory that we were carrying, for the amount of sales that it was generating, every time that we were actually selling a road bike, it was actually creating a negative cash flow for us. So it was kind of like a punch in the gut for us back then because so much of our marketing, our messaging, everything was focused on driving this one category of products for us that every time we were doing it, it was actually creating a negative cash flow. 
that was probably one of the biggest eye openers for us. And it doesn't mean that we pull back and we don't sell road bikes anymore, but our inventory levels are nowhere what they used to be when I look at road bikes and then what we do today. And our sales are higher today than they were then with a quarter of the inventory levels that we have. Those are the biggest eye openers for us, really like getting granular with our inventory, understanding inventory turns, you know, whether or not we're, we're charging enough. Cause that's a, that's a big thing too. Like sometimes we would negotiate too aggressive with customers. And when I say too aggressive, we would, our price would be too low. We'd end up selling product for too low. And once we crossed a certain threshold, you went from a positive cash flow sale to a negative cash flow sale. And what we were trying to do at that period of time was minimize uh, or eliminate as many areas that were creating a negative cash flow for us as possible. And once you did that, you also, I'm assuming, found categories that maybe you could either invest more inventory in or promote heavier because those categories were, were actually more profitable. Absolutely. And, you know, the good thing about understanding the the numbers was it also kept us in check because I might look at a certain category and say, oh man, this is, we're killing it over here. We're having good sales. We have good profit and it's creating a positive cash flow. Let's put some more dollars into this. It kept us to know like, it's okay to increase your, your inventory to generate more sales, but you have to do it very methodically and you just don't increase it so much because you could take a good category and turn it bad if you invest too much in inventory and you don't have the sales to correspond with that same increase. Excellent. Your NBDA membership helps support Bicycle Retail Radio. Go to nbda.com to join or renew your membership today. As far as the margins that you're you're looking at when you're looking at these categories, is there ever a time where you feel that the margins are too low to support a category? And, and if you get to that point, how do you address that? So I personally feel all the, all the product that is a bicycle retailer sells is too low margin. It's not something I can necessarily change. I'm not the manufacturer, I'm the retailer. You know, when we look at certain products, some of them you just have to sell in a sense where it creates the complete experience for the consumer. So, you know, we, we keep that in mind. We definitely try to offer other services that would offset the low margin being produced from products. So it could be as simple as charging for installs. When a customer buys a bike, the old, the old bike shop would, oh, you buy a bike today and we're going to give you X percent off of everything that you buy just because you bought a bike from us, or we're going to instantly give you a kickstand or automatically throw in that bottle and cage. We stopped all that stuff. You know, we can't afford to be losing those gross margin dollars by just giving stuff away. You know, it even goes at a deeper level as far as, you know, I always like to talk to, talk to my team about, you know, you got to value yourself. You know, like we've done this for a really long time. We can true a bicycle wheel in five minutes because we've done it for 15 years. That's worth something. Don't just give that stuff away for free and value the mechanics time. So when somebody sells a bike and they get a computer and a cage and a kickstand, that's taking a skilled mechanic's time to install those parts properly. You've got to be compensated for it. So we've definitely over the years, and we didn't start like this, but over the years, we definitely make sure that we, we charge 
for our time, whether that's a delivery, like I said, installations, we like to offer extended service plans, anything to help increase the labor dollars to offset the low gross margin that we get from products. Perfect. So let's pivot a little bit to expenses. We've talked about cash flow, your categories, turns. Now, when we get into your actual expenses, obviously the two biggest are going to be payroll and rent. I know that you, you and I have spoken and that you have moved some stores around in order to save on rent expenses. Mm-hmm. And you had said something in our first conversation that I thought was interesting about going uncomfortably small and having a very large dollar amount for your square footage per dollar sales. And I wonder if you can kind mm-hmm. of get into that because I think a lot of times retailers are looking to be in that perfect location, the A-plus location, I think you called it, that that necessarily yeah. is does not have to be all the time. No, no. And I I just, the one thing I do want to preface, like I said, I've been in the bike industry a long time and and I'm familiar with a lot of the people that make up the bike industry. And the conversation we're having today, I was nowhere even at that level 10 years ago or maybe, maybe 12 years ago. It took me a lot of learning. You know, I was the type of person, barely got out of high school. I, I wasn't college trained or anything, but I took a strong desire. I had a strong desire to learn as much as I could about the business. And through that journey, I've been able to analyze and learn and understand profit and loss statements and gross margins and return on event, like so much. So I just want to make sure like some of the conversation we're having today I know for a lot of bicycle retailers out there, it just might go over their head or they might not fully conceptualize what we're talking about, but I was most definitely there. So I just want to make sure that people understand (laughs) that aspect of me. But to go into your way. (laughs) No, and I and I I still to this day try to learn as much as I can and try to rethink and reanalyze, you know, how we do business. And and there's there's most definitely you know, we do some things really good, but I'm probably going to be my harshest critic and I'm always going to see the wrongs that we do. And I think that's also a very good trait where it just keeps me pushing to try to not be comfortable with our own status quo. I mean, instead just constantly be raising that bar. So I just wanted to put that out there before we got into the, the rents and what we've done, because you, you mentioned a plus locations. That was most definitely our mindset for many years was we've all heard it location, location, location. And that's what we did. But we also know that location, location, location costs money, top money. In the beginning, when we opened up in these awesome locations with big rent, larger stores, six, 7,000 square feet, it was good pre-recession just because the sales were there and I was able to support it. But once things changed, we started seeing our rent and we like to keep track of our rent as a percentage to gross revenue, total gross annual gross revenue. You know, when we first started out, our rents were in the 8% range. Then next year, you know, 9% and 10%. And then every year your lease will have some sort of rent escalation. So we were just seeing this, it was constantly going up. So even though we would get sales going higher, the rent was also going higher. And if you had one off year, it would throw that percentage very, not in the right direction. You know, I know we were seeing some of our rent percentages as high as 14%. And when you're 
when you're running your rent at 14%, it doesn't leave a lot of room for actual profit, take home net profit at the end of the year. This past year, this past summer, actually, you know, we had a few stores where all the leases basically were coming due at the same time. So we made the decision to, you know, really look at the square footage that we needed to analyze our sales per square foot, figure out what we were doing in that particular or those particular locations. We looked at our stores that were more profitable. We analyzed what those sales per foot was. And we tried to figure out what that sweet spot was for these new stores because we had an opportunity to change our lease, downsize, relocate, to do something. We weren't, we weren't locked in at that point. So we took that opportunity with all three locations and we ended up downsizing. We downsized one, which was about a 5,300 square foot store down to 2,200. So we cut that one in more than half, took another location, and we moved it from about a 5,000 square foot space to about 1,800. So again, less than half. And we took a, another store that was right around 4,000 and moved it to about a thousand square foot space. And that kind of goes a little bit into what you were talking about before, as far as stretching ourselves to get uncomfortable. Cause this is, it was a big lesson for me to learn this past summer, what that process looks like to downsize a store, to relocate a store. Um, not just from the construction aspect. But more so, the part that surprised me the most was how the staff processed that and how they dealt with it. And there was like, it's kind of odd, but there was like almost like a mourning period for we had this big store. Now we've got this little store and <laughs> we're forced. <laughs> it was weird. It took about two weeks, two to three weeks post the move for the staff to start to lift the morale. And it was really interesting. I never would have known that. I never would have guessed it. But it was this adjustment period for them because now they can no longer just hoard product, like hoard garbage, for lack of a better word. You know, they were forced to say, do we need this? Can we discard this? We don't have all this extra space for all these things. We have to run much more efficiently. So when I mentioned stretching ourselves to a point of uncomfortability, that was what I meant. It was like we were, we were going to be forced to make certain decisions that we didn't have to make before because we, we had ample space. And this was the first time that I was doing something like this and talking to some people, they were like, yeah, you know, you do have to expect a little downslide in sales because, you know, you're, you're moving your store. You don't have the same, you know, there's a disruption to the flow of things. So I took that into account when, when creating annual budgets for 2020. The surprising part besides the mourning period or the grieving period for, for the employees was we've actually done better in all the locations than we were in a bigger space, like considerably better, which is, it kind of, you know, it boggles my mind because one would think, wow, if you have a bigger store and you have more inventory, well, then you should sell more. But that wasn't, that hasn't been the case with us. And, you know, going back to before I mentioned the Pareto's principle, that was something that we applied when we were downsizing because we're like, okay, we can't have, let's just say it's $125,000 in inventory and a 5,000 square foot space. We can't have that same amount of inventory in a space that's less. So how are we going to choose what product stays and what product goes? So by applying the um, 
Fredo's principle, we were able to really figure out this is where we're going to sell the most. This is what we will sell the most of. Now, you know, one advantage that we do have that a single store company wouldn't have per se is we have sister stores. We leverage them. We're allowed to or, or able to have a store that is smaller doesn't carry as much inventory, maybe doesn't have all the bells and whistles and the high-end stuff that some of the other stores may have, but they're at our disposal. We can transfer product from one store to the next, so we won't lose those sales. We do have the inventory in hand, but it's strategically placed with all the different stores. Definitely an advantage to having multiple locations that we've been able to utilize that. Also another advantage for us to be able to keep our inventory down a little bit. Even if it's a single store business, you can still apply so much of that. What do you think is the reason that you're doing more sales in, I mean, these spaces are half of the size and the experts told you you're going to see a little bit of a, of a drop, but you haven't seen that. One of the stores that we talked about is it's under a thousand square feet. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. Correct. And it, it's doing fairly shocking numbers out of out of a size that's uh, just slightly bigger than maybe a three stall garage. Yeah, <laughs> but, you're correct. But, you know, to to put that into comparison of how much space that is, why do you think that is? Have you uh, do you have an answer or an idea as to why you? Yeah, been able so to... there's a few things. So location does play a part into it. And I'm not going to say that this is a A-plus location. By any means, it's not an A-plus location. But it's in an area that is traveled more and has a little bit higher population to it. So, so even though it's a smaller footprint, geographically, it's in the right area. Even though like it's not like this A-plus real estate, amazing views and everything like that. It's not like that. So that's going to be one thing. We've definitely been elevating our e-bike sales. That definitely plays a part into it. And we still get good road bike sales. So I would probably say geographic plays a part into it. E-bikes and road bikes, those those are some big movers for us. But it's still, it's a very small store. So I go right back to, all right, well, we can only stock so many bikes on the floor. Which ones are we going to stock that have the greatest opportunity to sell. And that goes back to what you, you said in the very beginning as far as inventory terms. The last thing, and then you and I spoke about this before, like, you know, when you look at a bike sitting on your, on your rack, that's tied up money right there that you can't reinvest in your company. You can't hire new employees. You can't invest in new product that's the latest and the greatest. Or if you're a business owner and you're doing well, you can't pull that out and possibly give yourself a little bonus. It's tied up in that product, in that bike on the sales floor. So I look at everything, all the product, like making sure that it's turning because inventory is like blood to any living animal. It, it, it needs to flow. It needs to bring the oxygen to the organs. If the inventory doesn't move, if the blood doesn't move, it dies. Things die. It's very important that you're really focusing on what is turning. I hear people always all the time talk about, oh, I've got this bike. It's three years old. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't even, I can't even understand that. Like how, how businesses run with inventory that is years old and even, even one year old. You know, we have a thing where pretty much right around six months, if that bike is hitting a six month mark, we got to send it home. We call them ugly babies and they just got to get adopted. We just got to send them home. And 
if it hits a year, we are slashing that price. We are, I don't care. Just get rid of it. You can sell it at cost. And there's times I sometimes I'll even sell it below cost. Not very often. And I'm not, I'm going to try to do it as rarely as possible. But every once in a while, you know, you get stuck with this high end bike. You have $5,000 tied up in this bike. It's a year and a half old. Somebody wants to buy it for 500 bucks under cost. But now you can take that money and reinvest it in product that you're going to turn four, five, six times over. Just move on. Just get rid of it. Move on. And that type of thinking is very foreign in the bike industry. It's very foreign. So those, those are all lessons that I've, that I've learned over the years. So I think that that leads us to the next biggest expense is payroll. And how for most shops, it's 20% seems to be the, the kind of the golden number. It's easy to go higher if you have long standing employees who have continually seen raises and are deserving of those. How do you keep that in check? Is that's a, obviously your, your single largest expense. Mm-hmm. How do you work with your inventory or your, your uh, payroll and your employees to keep that expense within reason? So, so first we start with payroll budgets. We take our data from over the years. And you know, I know this day and age, most bike shops have a point of sale system, but I still, I, I, I constantly hear from sales reps that some, they were going to bike shops that use a pen and paper. None of this stuff that we're talking about is really achievable by pen and paper. Like you need a point of sale system and you need to use it. It's not just a glorified cash register. So we take our data from years and you know, we break it down. Every single store has their own goal. And basically, it's a percentage of gross revenue. Now, that depends. Most bike shops are, you know, they have some level of seasonality to them. Even we do. We're in Florida, but there's there's still seasons. And we figure out like, okay, let's, you know, simple math, $100,000 a month. That's our goal. We're going to shoot for, let's just say, 12% for this particular month. So, okay, we got we got $12,000 of payroll that we can spend for this particular month. So we break it down per month, per day, and we manage that. I get weekly reports. Every Monday, I get a report that recaps our previous sales and probably about 40 different KPIs that I look at on, on a weekly basis. One of them focuses on payroll and lets us know, okay, this is the, these are the sales that we generated last week for this particular store. This was our payroll budget. Were they over or were they under? And let's just say they were over payroll. They had a lousy week and they're $500 over payroll. That store manager will get a phone call. Basically, it's up to them now that they need to trim payroll. Um, and when I say trim payroll, basically just, just cut some hours. Now, this is achieved primarily. In, this, in order to do this effectively, you have to have a mixture of full-time and part-time employees in your store. Because if you're guaranteeing a, f- a full-time employee 40 hours and now you start cutting them, it's not fair to them. You know, you, you know, as an employer, you make, an, you make a commitment, you know, to that employee that you're going to give them X amount of hours so that they can actually, you know, have a life and be able to do things. So that is not at all where we look to initially cut hours. So we're always going to look at affecting part-time employees first. We're also going to look at, hey, did anybody get a little lazy and they start running employees into overtime? Because that's an easy one where it's like, hey, you got 10 hours of time and a half on your payroll last week. You know, let's cut that. Another thing that we're going to look at is 
whether or not they have a bunch of sales that were made last week, but they didn't necessarily go home yet. So they might be going out in a few days. So those sales, they, they were made, but they didn't actually count. So, we, you know, I, I want to know like, hey, what, what do you have in the hopper that's going to be closing out this month or this week? Because that also take you got to take that into account when managing your payroll. So it's done weekly. It's difficult. In the early years, I would keep people throughout the entire year more so. Everyone knows like recruiting in the bike industry is a pain in the ass. Finding good help is is not easy. So you don't want to necessarily let go of people, you know, when the season starts to taper down. But it took me a few years in the beginning to realize like, okay, we're in the off season. My payroll is way too high, but I'm going to carry these teammates through the summer and then they're going to be ready to go next season. Without fail, every single year, I would carry one or two employees throughout the summer for them to leave when I needed the most. And I was just like, why am I doing this? It's not helping me at all. I would have been better off cutting my payroll back in the, at the end of last season and save myself, you know, a significant amount of money. So that was, that was a bit of a lesson learned. We stick to our payroll budgets. You know, that is like, you, none of it is manageable. If you don't understand your numbers, if you don't have budgets and goals to strive for, the thing that I've learned over the years as well is when I first started doing this, we used to, you know, we had the, we, you know, we had the payroll budgets but I would manage them on a monthly basis. And what ended up happening was we close out the month. Now I have to wait 10 to 14 days for my accountant to send me the profit and loss statement, balance sheet, cash flow. And then at that point, I'd be able to analyze the numbers. But by that point, it's the middle of the next month. I was so far behind the swing that it couldn't really affect stuff. So by, by the time I could actually make some decisions and make some moves, I already lost probably three or four weeks, if not more, of over payroll. It was just costing us tens of thousands. So when we changed the frequency of when and how we measured it to weekly instead of monthly, complete transformation. Because now we were looking at it so much more frequently and we could actually affect the sales or the expenses in a specific month. I think that's a really critical takeaway across the board is that you are looking at these KPIs on a weekly or a monthly basis versus a lot of stores. It's once a year. They send their stuff into the accountant. They get their P&L and a balance sheet for a 12-month period. And it's way too late then, obviously. But your point that it's too late two or three weeks, or, you know, if it's every week now, if you were doing it once a month and you were already two or three weeks, that's five, six weeks of a swing in having that knowledge in hand. And I'm assuming that that information is coming from your point of sale. Is that correct? Yes. Everything starts with that point of sale. So just like with your accountant, your accountant's going to, and hopefully people have accountants or bookkeeper that is able to (laughs) actually generate your statements because there's so many businesses out there that still just, they run their business by looking at their bank, their bank account. And if they've got money in there, they say, okay, I'm doing good. I learned a long time ago that I just didn't want to be a bike shop owner. I wanted to be a businessman. And there's a very big difference from getting into bicycles because it's your hobby versus running an actual business and treating it like a business. And all of the data, all of the stuff that we're talking about today 
none of it would be possible if you didn't have good data. You got to maintain a point of sale system to a very high level of accuracy, cycle counts, category helps, everything. Like if you're not maintaining that, then you're making decisions based off of false data or sloppy data. You're never going to run a great business by making decisions off of crappy data. So everything like that was a that was a huge thing for us. Also, probably probably around fourteen, two thousand fourteen, our accountant was too lackadaisical with the numbers. And what I mean by that is he had this mind, this this like this, this little saying like, ah, it's all going to work out at the end of the year. Everything will just collapse. There wasn't a lot of granular getting nitty gritty with a specific, you know, a specific category on your P and L. It's like, ah, it's all going to work out. Again, I go back to we were making decisions with not the most accurate or I don't know if the most accurate, but the, the, the data could have been at a much higher quality. So we, we ended up changing accountants and that was a process and a half. And that also helped me start this, this, on um, this road of understanding accounting because we ended up going with an accountant at first that didn't really understand bicycle retail. So I, I caution everybody to make sure that you have an accountant, but the accountant actually understands bicycle retail. Because um, if they don't, they're going to say your numbers are really not what they probably are. Uh, and that could be good or bad. So, you know, we were able to get um, an accountant that really gives us awesome optics today. Like the data that we get is so accurate and it, it allows us to make really good decisions. And that was, that was a huge game changer for us because, again, it's, the quality of your data is everything. NBDA's newest program is called Rides. It will increase your store revenue and your customer loyalty. It's exclusive to NBDA members. Go to nbda.com and join today. So I think we've kind of got the operations under our belt here. If somebody is listening to this, the secrets of the world have been revealed. I think <laughs> as, as to how to become more profitable and run a better business, there's so much that we've covered and it is very obviously at a very high level. But I think that we've covered the important things about the business. The last thing that I want to talk to you about is the idea of what happens when somebody comes into the store and how your employee ends up selling them a bike. And this is a part of the business that I think gets overlooked a lot. And you have some of the most interesting information in that regard. And when we've spoken before, you referred to your business as it's not necessarily a bicycle shop or just even it's okay. just, you just said it's a business, but you also say that it's a sales organization and that that's a critical Correct. part. Well, I was going to say, just to kind of ease out of this conversation on that, and I think that mm -hmm. this is probably the most critical part of the whole deal is that when a customer comes in, that they get sold and that they're not just walking around or somebody's just chatting to them about bikes, that your, your employees know that they need to close those sales and that sales are everything. 100%. And, and that ties directly into your last question when it comes to managing payroll, because as I said before, everything, you know, we base it off of gross revenue. So one way to make your payroll percentage go down or your rent percentages go down is to increase your sales. You know, I always think of it as like you're flying an airplane and you've got all these different levers to pull. So you got to make sure you pull the right lever, push the right button. Otherwise you crash 
or you can, you know, take off and, you know, fly high. Managing, you know, payroll budgets and rent expenses, that's one thing. But as far as getting that culture, that mindset into our teammates that, yes, it's awesome. We get to work in a, in a bicycle store. We, we get to get people onto bicycles. It's exciting. It's our passion. It's fun. That's great. Absolutely great. However, we're a business first and foremost. We're here for profit. We're not a nonprofit. We're not a charity. We are here to make money. With that being said, everybody in the company is in sales. Like literally, if you say hi to a customer, you're in sales. You know, you can affect positively or negatively that customer's experience and whether or not they decide to do business with us. So getting that mindset in, that was probably something we did years ago. That's very important. And that's not really normal, common. At least it wasn't that common back when we started doing it. I think it's becoming more prevalent that people are realizing sales, how important sales are in bicycle retail, but it wasn't always like that. So, you know, we, we've invested heavily on different sales training programs over the year, over the years. And really just, it's our objective to make sure that that customer is coming in our store for a reason. They're not just coming there to kick tires or to waste time. You know, they're there with an objective. You know, we don't want to just sell them the one thing they came in for. We want to understand exactly how they're using the product today, tomorrow, maybe six months or a year from now, and make sure that we sell them the complete package. That is where we strive for. And I go back to before how I said that we, um, you know, I have weekly KPIs, you know, around 40 of them that I get a report every Monday morning. A lot of those have to do with the different products, the different add-on dollars, the uh, add-on units, the, the labor, like all these different things that we have, we, we're, we're measuring that weekly. And, and not only am I seeing those numbers, all of my store managers also see these reports and it's broken down per store. So they, they know exactly where they are in regards to either their historical numbers from a previous time period or their other colleagues in the other stores. But sales, that was another one of those aha type moments because I always understood it. I always understood the importance of sales and I was always kind of mesmerized when I would see certain salespeople in bicycle retail that would just seem so fluid and so natural at it. And they'd be able to take a customer and, and use certain words in their presentation, in their pitch, their sales, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. And they'd be able to move that customer from, from one point to the next and then ultimately to a purchase. The sales process has always been fascinating. I always kind of view it as like a, like a, like science. You know, you bring in psychology and how you position yourself. There's, that's a, that's a whole other conversation that we can get into. But instilling that in all my teammates, that's where the magic really starts to happen because that's where you really start to elevate gross sales. People start feeling better. People start earning more. You know, with us also, the majority of our salespeople are on a compensation model that offers a nice base pay plus commission on top of that. And that has been something that we've worked on and tweaked over the years to find the right model for us. That's a big game changer for us because I want hungry salespeople. I want people that, like a better word, they, they are driven for earning more money. And that doesn't necessarily mean that means they don't care about the customer. We have clearly established values that we have to operate by. So having integrity is paramount to everything. So when you apply the values 
the right compensation model, the right teammates with a culture that really focuses on being a sales organization and truly understanding that, yes, I am in sales and sales is not a four-letter word. When you can get to that point, you can really start to see some some incredible things happen. And by no means were we like that in the beginning, by no means. It took us many years to get to that point. But if, yeah, if anybody listening to this could take any nugget, getting your team to believe and understand at the core level that everybody's in sales, it's a sales organization, you can, you can dominate your market. You can screw up with your payroll. You can have too high a rent, but sales... <laughs> Sales can make up for a lot of mistakes. So, and to be clear, you've gone outside to bring in sales training. And we can leave this as a little bit of a tease, I think, because we could go into this for days. We There's an article on the NBDA's Outspoken newsletter that you can find online that kind of covers a little bit more of this. But as a tease to maybe get somebody to go read that, what percentage of a sales increase do you feel you've seen from instituting an outside sales program and implementing that in your business? When we when we first implemented it, it was noticeable. Uh, 20%, you know, like literally within a month, maybe six weeks after implementing the training, after getting the staff to go through the training, it was noticeable. And the reason why I went outside the bike industry was um, at that point of time, I just didn't feel that any of the sales training was at the level that I wanted it to be. You know, and it's not knocking any of the systems that were there. There was a good foundation, but I didn't want an okay sales training program. I wanted a kick-ass sales training program. And there were some hurdles with that. There was definitely some hurdles with that because a lot of my team, they had a hard time possibly connecting the message because they weren't necessarily talking about a bicycle every time. Actually, none of the time they, were, they weren't talking about a bicycle. It was more of a general uh, sales platform. But when they could get past that, when they learned to get past that and, and look at the techniques being applied and the words being chosen, once they started to do that, it was awesome. Well, I hope that people's eyes popped out of their head when they heard 20%. <laughs> that That's a big number. And I know that I've, when we've spoken in the past, that the sales training was a very important part of this whole equation. I think we're pretty much out of time. And I really hope that anybody listening to this has their, their mind whirling around right now of things that they could apply that you've heard here today. Is there anything that you kind of want to go out with here, Joe, as far as uh, the people that are listening, if there's just one last kind of quick bit of advice for them to make their own business more successful and to emulate your success? I mean, for one, we do a lot right, but by no means are we doing any, everything perfect. Um, like I mentioned that before, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's so many things that we need to do better jobs at. Becoming really curious about your business and fostering a, a hunger to have a greater understanding of why certain things happen in your business. That's where so much of this started for me. The shit hit the fan in 2008. I had no idea why I couldn't pay my vendors, why I couldn't pay myself, why I had to cut my staff. I had no idea. Like I'm, on one hand, everything was looking great. On the other hand, it looked like the, the day, my days were numbered just because I didn't understand business. And when I really started understanding business and accounting, specifically accounting, and I was very intimidated by numbers. I, I, I was never, I never considered myself a math person. When I said, screw it and let me really 
you know, jump into understanding business and how to run a good business, everything changed from there. So yeah, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff on the call. You know, I'd be more than happy to hop on a call with anybody if they had a question about anything or email. Talking business, I love it. I can talk business all day long. <laughs> so, yeah, just get curious about your business. That's the foundation. Get curious about your business and just know it's that belief system that you have on yourself. If you believe that you're going to run a kick-ass business, you'll figure a way to run a kick-ass business. And, you know, if you don't, you don't, you know. So I think I would wrap it up with that. Perfect. Thank you, Joe. I think that that's a, that's a really key thing. And, and most people are in bicycle retail because they love retail. They love bicycle retail, especially. And if they can fine tune their business practices, they'll be able to stay in a business that they love. So learning about the business isn't something that you should just kind of let go by the, the sidelines. It's important if you want to stay doing what you love doing and you should be compensated well for it. So thank you very much, Joe. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. And for everybody else who's listening, we're glad you tuned in. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Music.